verses 26 through 28. These are all the words of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And finally, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Merciful God, we live in days of open rebellion against you and the way you made the world the way you made men and women, and the purposes you have for our lives, for family, for society. Let your word reign. Let it minister here in this church and to the church at large, to the church which has led the compromises. Let the preaching of your word bring salvation to the nations. For we ask it in the name of of, of the King of Kings, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The attack on the biblical family, the definition of what it means to be family, the definition of what it means to be made in the image of God continues in our land and in our day. Totalitarian regimes and Satan both know that tearing down the image of God, male and female, and all that God has given in the institute of marriage and family, and all that marriage and family is to produce, is the way to destroy a nation and a people and turn them over to a tyrannical and pagan state. And that is why totalitarian regimes attack the family. And that is why Satan attacks the family. Marriage, the marriage bed, procreation, and family are to be honored as gifts from the Lord. Hebrews 13.4 says the marriage bed is to be honored. Fornicators will be judged. Um, the, when, when he says, of course, that the marriage bed is to be honored, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the sexual intimacy that occurs and is to occur in the covenant of marriage and all that it means and all that it produces and all that is to be maintained and protected and used by it. 
This, this gift, these gifts of the marriage bed are to be stewarded by God's people in the growth of his kingdom. While these gifts have always been under attack, it has often been in very covert ways. But in these days of open rebellion, we live in a generation where what was once only spoken of in the dark is now being openly proclaimed and worse, legally protected. Marriage, family, sex, sexuality are strong and glorious gifts uh, that God gives to us, that he has given to us. Understood rightly and obeyed biblically, they are not just a great blessing. They are the best foundation and protection under the, under the gifts and callings of God to provide for the building of the kingdom of God that we have been called to build. To establish people and nations that love and serve and honor God and enjoy the rich blessings of this world while protecting one another from the world, the flesh, and the devil. A misunderstanding, a misuse, a perversion and twist of these gifts is just as powerful. It destroys. It tears down. It kills. Murders. It separates. Makes autonomous. Makes very lonely and full of despair a people so that you can be living in the midst of a large population of people and, in, and at the same time have a sense you don't know anyone and no one knows you. And so much of that is tied to the sexual sins in our day. Um, I want to begin by reminding you, by teaching you, by encouraging you of the rich blessings of the, of the, and, and the foundations of, of those blessings that are in marriage and sexual intimacy, these gifts. In Genesis 1, in this first passage that we look at, but in all of Genesis 1, we learn of God's absolute sovereignty over everything created and that everything was created by the word of his power. We see in Genesis 1 that everything that exists exists because God spoke it into existence. And just the very act of speaking reveals God's sovereignty and lordship over all that he has created. It's his. It is his design. He owns it all. And he uses it all to his glory. It's the reason that anything and anyone exists. The reason is God and his glory. It's the reason that you exist. You exist for God and for his glory. You wouldn't exist if there was no God. And you would not exist if there was not a God who had spoken out of his own desire, his own will, in his own ordination and said, I want you to exist. I want this to exist. And I want it to exist to the glory of my name. His glorious capstone, we're told in Genesis 1, to his creation work is man, because it is only man that he says, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, verse 26 again. And then verse 27 describes the creation of man, male and female, as the work of that image-bearing creation. Verse 27 says again, says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Man, Adam, in his own, uh, on his own, was made in the image of God. But it is, but it is uh, truly revealed, that image of God is truly revealed in the them, in the male and female, in, in the separateness, the distinctiveness, and yet the union as well of man Male and female, made in the image of God. And as image bearers, 
Well, some, to, to note this, male and female are not accidents in the providence of God. They are design features in image bearing. Even evolutionists struggle to try to understand how it is that out of uh, mere random chance over billions and billions and billions of years, um, that, that somehow we evolved into a species and all the other species, living species, evolved into being two separate parts that have to come together in order to create anything. They, they still scratch their heads over why did it happen to be that and why just two and on and on. It doesn't work to, to think about rolling the dice that many times and ending up to, and, and being able to come with that many, uh, that many changes, that many things that then work. That actually works. You put a man and a woman together and babies come out. This is, this is not an accident, right? Male and female, and all that exists about maleness and femaleness is not an accident. It is the very design feature of God. And as image bearers, man is commanded to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion over everything. It's built into us, built into us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to take dominion over everything. This, this would be according to God's likeness, and as, Im, as image bearer, everything man did was to be good, acceptable, and holy to God. But chapter 2 gives us more information. It turns out it was not good for Adam to work alone. Chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make it a help him a helper comparable to him. God would give him a helper comparable or suitable to him. This helper would come from Adam, not the ground. Whereas Adam came from the dust, the woman comes from his side and is fashioned, though, by God and brought to Adam as his helpmate, as, his, um, as one who is suitable to come alongside him in the work that God had called us to do, this glory work that God was called, had called us to do over all the world. She would be from Adam, but she would not be another Adam. And the mystery is unbelievable. It's hard to fathom. She would be from Adam, but she would not be another Adam. Nor was she only a servant for a very busy Adam. It was not that Adam looked out at the world and went, wow, I'm never going to be able to get all this done. I need some helpers. That was true if you're going to take, take dominion, especially if you're going to be fruitful and multiply. But it, but, but it was not just that he had things to do and he needed someone to, to join with him. He needed somebody who would be the perfect match for him in the work that, was, that he was called to do. So, um, uh, they, they are brought together and then called good, well suited for the purposes of God and, and the purposes that God gave mankind for their existence. He brings them together and he brings them together in what is called a covenant. A covenant. Covenant is, is, is something that God orchestrates, that God brings forth, his sovereign word that comes over individuals or nations or between he and his people, where he declares the, the terms of the covenant and the blessings and curses surrounding that covenant. Well, Adam recognizes and rejoices in what God does. In chapter 2, verse 21, we have the very first love poem ever written. Uh, let's read uh, 20, uh, so uh, verse 20. So Adam, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, 
And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this is this great blessing from God. She becomes more than a friend, she becomes his companion. Together, they become the prototype of intimate companionship protected by covenant vows. They become the very prototype, the picture for us, of how companionship, intimate companionship, is formed. It's formed underneath covenant vows, and it's formed in such a way that you can be naked and unashamed with one another. They become the example of what family, society, and culture will be built upon. If you think about it, Adam and Eve, remember, Adam and Eve are the first society. <laughs> it's just Adam and Eve. That's the entire, um, the entire makeup of mankind. There is society right there before you. And so you learn something about marriage, and of course you learn something about society and how society is to, um, uh, is to work itself out and what, it is, what is it to be built upon. What are, what's a society to be built on? Families. Families. Because societies have to exist with the building blocks to uh, reproduce themselves, to continue on, to grow, to flourish, and be able to spread out and continue the work that God has given us to do on this, uh, in this land. So, um, they become this example, and at the center of this covenant vow is the fact that they become one flesh, which is certainly an indication of their sexual intimacy. Under these covenant vows, in their sexual intimacy, they, they become one. The two, are, the two who are separate actually become one, one flesh. Marriage is a sexual union between one man and one woman, protected by covenant vows of faithfulness to one another made before God and society. So uh, marriage, is not, um, marriage is not the result of some rom-com out there that took place. Marriage is the result of a sexual union that took place because covenant vows have first of all been made to one another for the protection of that intimacy and for the provision of all that God calls for us in order to take dominion as a society over the world around us. Marriage is a sexual union between one man and one woman protected by covenant vows of faithfulness to one another made before God and before society. Without this, mankind cannot accomplish what God has created for man and commanded him to do. Therefore, and so here's, here's the conclusion of this part, any attempt to redefine the origin and purpose of marriage, sex, procreation, and family, and there are many attempts in all of those areas, any attempt any attempt to redefine the origin and purpose of marriage, sex, procreation, and family is a direct assault on God. Any attempts to normalize behavior that twists God's purposes in these areas, be it fornication, no-fault divorce, abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and all sexual uncleanness, are the weapons of that assault. Work in those areas, practice any of those things, and you are picking up weapons to assault the image of God and God himself. That's what you have done. That's what we do when we fornicate. 
That's what we do when we, when we break God's laws regarding sexual intimacy. We are picking up weapons and assaulting God. These are great sins. But they are also tragic acts of enslavement and destruction, both to individuals and to societies. They destroy, these are the things that destroy families. These are the things that destroy individuals. These are the things that murder tens of millions of babies. These are the things that, that completely devalue what a person is and turn them into objects for our own self-gratification. According to our own desires, which we need to understand have been bent, have been ruined by the fall. We may not give in to our desires unless we first submit our desires to the Word of God. And all of our desires are bent in any of a number of ways, which is why we must come to, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, be washed and cleansed from the inside out, and change the way that we live by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit within us, working himself out in and through us. It is the only way of salvation, and it's the only way, not, of, of, not just for your ticket to heaven, it's the only way that your desires are ever going to line up with God's word. Your desires are not natural in that sense. They do come from a fallen nature, and they come from an old man. Once you have, once you have, even the man, old man is crucified, you're the new man in Christ, there's still the old, the, the remnants of the old man, his, his ways that have, have taken place upon your flesh, your being. And they must be mortified. And God has given us ways to mortify him. Now, so, before we go anywhere else, I, I want you to see that this gift of marriage, this gift of family is this powerful, wonderful, glorious gift that God has given to us. And each and every one of you have grown up in homes where it was less than perfect. Sometimes it was incredibly neglectful. Sometimes it was even abusive. But the, the abuse or the twist or the perversion of family or marriage or sex... It does not mean that those things are wrong. It means they were perverted. <laughs> Don't you see? And, and our world is running away from all those things. And part of the reason our world is running away from all those, uh, running away from a biblical understanding of all these things is because so many people have been hurt in the midst of, in the, midst of the perversion and the twistedness, but they won't turn to Christ. They, they, turn to all, they, they turn elsewhere, and, and in so many ways they turn inside, into themselves, into their own desires, to protect themselves when Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins, removal of shame, the promise to make good on anything and everything evil or bad or awful that has ever happened to you. And instead, people try to run off and make their own God, their own idol, their own sets of laws. And the world is destroying itself in our generation all around us. There is no joy. There's nothing but despair and, and, a, and, a, and a stench of death in the air of our society and our culture. It's dark and growing darker. And it is because we have openly decided that we are going to rebel against God in all these things. One subsection after another of how we rebel against God. And that is the revelation of, um, of, 
of God's judgment upon us. So these tragic acts not only are an affront to God, but they enslave people. They enslave us. Both individuals and societies. And the Word of God teaches us that as this happens, it is the very judgment of God upon us. He is the one enslaving us to our lusts. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see this. After making a great declaration of what the gospel is, Paul, in his uh, great letter, uh, describing and detailing the work of the what the gospel is in Jesus Christ, he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he has to describe why it is that we need the good news. And so he lays out the bad news in chapters 1, 2, and most of chapter 3. He begins in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is a wrath of God that is being poured out because of our unrighteousness, and it is revealed, and it's revealed against all ungodliness. The wrath of God is being revealed to those, he says, who suppress the truth of God and suppress it with unrighteousness. So two things there. First of all, what we are do, what we do is we suppress the truth. We know what the truth is, and we suppress it. But the other thing is that we suppress it, and the thing that we suppress it with is unrighteousness. As much wickedness and darkness as possible. That's how we suppress the truth. We try to raise those things up to be good. The problem is not that they cannot see the truth, but which is clearly visible. This is, this is in 19 and 20, but may be known of God as manifested in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. They know within themselves, he'll describe elsewhere in, the, in these chapters, first chapters, they already know the law of God. They already know what is right and wrong. We all do. We suppress that truth. We suppress what is right, and we do so with unrighteousness and darkness. So the two main tenets, though, of this argument, verse 21, is... The following. They deny God's existence and they refuse to render to give thanks to him. They refuse to glorify God, acknowledge him as God in all his glory, and they refuse to give thanks. They refuse to give thanks to him. This causes their thoughts to become futile and their hearts to become foolish and darkened. Verse 21. Again. When for multiple generations we celebrate our secular culture, refuse to acknowledge God or give thanks to him, and teach our children to do the same, we are doing exactly what Romans 1 is talking about. We don't need God. We don't need God in the authorities of our lives. We do not need God in the authorities of what it means to be husband and, and what headship is about and what families are for. We don't need God to determine and declare how, government, uh, how a civil government should run. We don't even need God to determine what we should be doing in our churches. We don't need God. Oh, I might have God in my, little, in my heart, some little God that I might have in my heart to make me feel good every once in a while, but we don't need the authority of God telling us what to do. We are a secular people. 
We refuse to acknowledge God. We refuse to give thanks to him. And we teach our children to do the same. What happens? God gives such a nation over to its idolatry and lust. Verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, uh, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Why? Because God gave them over and up. God gave them up to their lust. Now, as a nation, as a people, turn themselves over, give, walking away from God, the first thing he does is, is take away our understanding of what it means to be a person, of what it means to be made in God's image, male and female, and it begins to show itself out in all kinds of sexual immorality, including homosexuality. Rebelling against the natural use of marriage is the expected outcome, according to Paul is the expected outcome of rebellion against the triune God. This is not simply a physiological issue, but it is that. The parts don't fit. We have already rebelled against the natural fruit of this, uh, uh, of this use, and we, and we do so. The natural fruit of this use is children. And our holocaust of abortion um, reveals our rebellion against the natural purposes of procreation, of, of, of intimacy, of sexual intimacy. And so now, now abortion and children are simply a choice or parts to be sold um, for refitting others. And it has led to the no-fault divorce clauses, the high divorce rates, the epidemic use of porn, same-sex marriage, quote-unquote, and not enough letters in our alphabet to describe the growing LGBTQ world. This is not a warning that God will judge us in the future, although he will. This is not a warning that God will judge us in the future for our sexual rebellion. Our sexual rebellion and confusion are the very judgments of God upon us. I was having coffee yesterday morning and I got an alert. Did you get the alert? 10 o'clock in the morning? Tsunami is coming. The West Coast better watch out. And, and I put the phone down and I thought, well, I'm, how far away am I from the coast? I'm, I'm fine. It's like, I don't need to worry about that. And, and then quickly found out it was way out in the Pacific Ocean. And, but I did think to myself, if God said through a tsunami, I'm, I'm, I'm done with the left coast... Should we be surprised? Yeah. And I had prepared this message already. And I wondered. And God's merciful because here we are. Merciful because here we are. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I read earlier as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so our sexual rebellion, it turns out, and our sexual confusion are the very judgments of God upon us. And I know that this is going to sound strange, but I'm going to tell you that's really good news. Because if our sexual rebellion and our sexual confusion is the very judgment of God, that means he's in control of it. And if he's in control of it, then there's somewhere to turn. You see, our world is telling people caught up in sexual confusion and sexual perversion. You can't help yourselves. You're born that way. You're made that way. 
There's, and, and so then they have to start teaching us that it's okay to be that way. And then they begin to um, persecute those who might want to help with the words of the gospel, with the words of healing and hope. If God isn't in control of this, if God isn't in sovereign control of this, then we are doomed. But if it is he himself who has turned us over to these things, then we have one to turn to who can get us out. Do you see that? And so while these grievous sins, sexual and otherwise, that are listed here in chapter 6, let, let me read them again, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's 9 and 10. And these sexual sins and otherwise exclude us from the kingdom of God and condemn one to eternal judgment. The good news is proclaimed to those in Christ in the next verse. Verse 11. Paul writing to a church, writes to a church of those who were committed fornicators and adulterers and extortioners. They were committed homosexuals. They were committed thieves and drunkards. And he says, you were. He says, such were some of you, were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then there's the way out. There's the way out for the, from the enslavement. Those sins do not have to identify you. They don't have to identify you. Your sexual orientation, your deviant desires, your passions of lust, they can be mortified and you can be set free. First, by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in honest confession that he is Lord and that he has died for your sins and that they are all covered by the blood. By embracing and believing him by faith and walking in him because of his gracious love and mercy, empowered by his spirit to now pick up your life and follow him. Day by day, step by step, change by change, trial by trial, sanctification work by sanctification work, blessing by blessing, discipline by discipline, you follow the Lord Jesus into glory. Instead of being identified by your enslavement to your lusts. Your choice. It's offered to you. It's such sweet good news. But here's the deal. So your, your sexual orientation, your deviant desires, your passions of lust, they can be mortified and you can be set free. And to say this in the pulpit today, today, this Lord's Day, in Canada, can put you in prison for up to five years. To say this as a counselor or a parent is a criminal offense today. To tell people they can be set free is illegal criminally punishable. In Canada, it is now illegal to persuade others of the harmful, and I now quote from the preamble to the law, C4, Bill C4. It's now illegal to persuade others of, of the harmful, quote, myth, myth, 
that heterosexuality, cinder gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Long sentence, it's always a long sentence in laws. Here's what it says. It's harmful, it's, it is a harmful myth that they're declaring that heterosexuality is to be preferred over other sexual orientations. It's a myth, it's a lie. The thing the guy's saying up there in the pulpit, it's a lie. Don't buy it. In fact, we're going to help you not buy it. We're going to arrest him, and we're going to throw him in prison, and we're going to teach you people to quit hurting and harming these people who are just following their own desires and identities. You see, that this is the one of the two worlds we live in. It's not both ways. Either I am harming people in the declaration of the gospel, or I am offering freedom in the name of Jesus Christ. But it's not both. It's one or the other. And Canada has decided. America's a step or two behind. No one can any longer provide what they call conversion therapy. Well, so what's that? Well, it's defined in the law very carefully. It's defined in the law as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Basically, it is illegal to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses... Seven, or, yeah, 7 through 9. 7 through 11. The law is broad. It's real broad and it hasn't been tested yet. So we'll see. But it seems to declare that a practice and the intention of those, those that wrote it, it they, they, will, they will clearly state that a practice, a treatment, or a service is any kind of counseling or persuading for the purpose of helping someone frankly, obey God and find freedom from their sin, from their shame, to find forgiveness for their sins, to be restored, made right with God and with their fellow man. Well, here's the deal. When the word of God becomes illegal, the ministers of God's church must speak. It is not, there's not an option. When the word of God becomes illegal, the ministers of God's church must speak. Uh, when they had been arrested for preaching, um, the uh, disciples said what it, uh, in Acts chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. They were told, stop preaching. Stop telling them about the good news. And they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. We have been commanded to go and disciple the nations and to teach all that, uh, everything that God has commanded. All authority, Jesus said, has been given to me in heaven and on earth, not in just little hearts, but upon all kingdoms. Go therefore, he says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Apparently, we don't get to pick and choose. No cherry-picking through the Word of God. 
which compromising churches are saying all the time. They will say, today in pulpits, I guarantee you, today in pulpits, people are not preaching on the sin of homosexuality or the sin of abortion or the sin of all kinds of fornications. And, there's, and, the, and the reason they aren't, they'll say, well, it's not a gospel issue. It's not a gospel issue. It's not really that important to talk about those things. We just need to bring people to Jesus Christ. Well, who would he be exactly, this Jesus that you're bringing them to? Well, somebody that you can invite in your heart and he'll make you feel better, more whole. And that's it. Not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not the rulers over, ruler over all nations. Not the ruler and king of every action, thought, motivation in your life, always. Just a guy you can call upon every once in a while when you have some needs. That's not the gospel. The gospel starts in Genesis 1. The gospel continues and is brought forth particularly in Genesis 3 after our fall when it is promised that the seed of the woman um, will crush the seed of the serpent. And this is warfare that is going on. And the gospel, the good news of, uh, is that Jesus won. He won the war. And the, and the, and the skirmishes that are going on are our, our opportunity to participate in his victory by telling people that Jesus Christ is Lord of everything and everyone. Paul said that he was innocent of the blood of all men, for he had not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 26, 27. He didn't say, well, I avoided certain things because they weren't gospel issues. Near the end of his ministry, he charged Timothy to preach whether they wanted to hear it or not. 2 Timothy 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Notice that? <laughs> according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Myths. <laughs> We're not the myth. We're not the fable. This is the truth. This is life. This is the way. On this Lord's Day, today, many preachers in the United States are joining with faithful preachers in Canada to say to the government of Canada and to every soft totalitarian government, no, no. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not constrain the preaching of the gospel. We will not cease to declare the good news of forgiveness of sins through faith in the Son of God, who died to pay for those sins, to set people free, and to reconcile them to their Heavenly Father. You must not, and you do not have to remain in your sin, and in your shame, and in your despair. You must not, and you do not have to, Turn away from yourself, turn away from your sinful desires, and turn in faith to the one who will make you whole. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And for all of us, I wanted one last passage to consider. It's the passage of walking in, in this ongoing sanctification of our lives. 
Take this passage, Ephesians 5, 3 through 7, and apply it where you will, where you need to. The decisions that you make in your life for what you consume, how you spend your time, what you talk about, what you give yourself to. Listen, again, 5, 3, 6, 7. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So not just their repentance. This is not a call to their repentance. This is a call to our repentance. This is a call to your repentance. You also, Christian, do not have to walk in your sinful habits, and you must repent as well. There is the ongoing daily dying to oneself that is part of the Christian walk. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we all need to learn how to deny ourselves daily. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Come after him. Take up your cross daily and follow him. God has given you what you need to work out your salvation. You are not left alone in this at all. This is, the, this is the wonderful news of Christianity. Unlike every other religion where their God is basically sitting up in heaven, tapping his foot, waiting for you to do a bunch of good works. But Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, he says he's confident of this very thing that he, God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you're in Jesus Christ, Paul is saying he is so confident, not in you, (laughs) but he's so confident in God that God is going to continue and finish the good work that he's begun in you. And then in just the very next chapter in Philippians, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. In other words, as you obeyed, you did a great job obeying me when I was around. But when I'm not... When your mom and dad are not, when your wife is not, when you are alone, when the law is not just being thundered before you, but instead some kind of temptation is right there before you. Paul says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You work out what God is working in. Do you believe God's working in? If you don't believe God's working in, then you have another sin to confess. Then your God is way too small. Okay? You're not worshiping the God of the Scriptures. Because what God is working in is your full and complete glorification on that final day. And it is the work of His sanctification in you right now. And He has given you by His Spirit what you need to be able to say no to temptation. Not to take all temptation away. Get over that. That ain't happening here, folks. But you'll be able to say no to temptation. And be able by the power of the Spirit 
to walk by faith, trusting in Him. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow Him, find your delight in Him, find your strength in Him. Because He is at work in you. Therefore, because He is at work in you, work out your salvation and do so with fear and trembling. Take it very, very, very seriously. That's what God's called you. Vibrant, forgiven Christians and faithful, fruitful marriages. They will be what God uses to proclaim His gospel, rebuilding, reforming, and reviving a nation under God. So back to my call to worship and all your inconvenient children and all your mundane tasks and all the, all the tough work it means to be married, to have family, children, keep it all together. You are going to have to forgive one another a lot. You're going to have to bear with one another a lot. You're going to have to put on tender mercies a lot. You're going to have to stand and speak the truth in love a lot. Because we're a bunch of sinners and we really bump into each other a lot. But as we do so, believing God's promises and building families faithfully for generations, that is what God is going to use to build the kingdom of God. And that means that every mundane day, and mundane tasks that you moms are doing, that you teachers are doing, you parents, that you laborers out in the work field in order to provide for your family are doing. The, the most mundane things you are doing are all to the glory of God. He is watching and he will reward and use them greatly. That's his plan for you in your life. The question is, do you believe it? And the church doesn't believe it anymore. We keep coming to church to get a little, some kind of spiritual emotional high for a minute or two. All that we would be done with revivalism. That we would be done with altar call moments of passion that quickly waft away into nowhere. And instead, we would be people who come here to be renewed in the covenant we never left. And strengthened by a God who will never leave you or forsake you. And we'll walk with you and your family for a thousand generations building his kingdom to the glory of his name. Oh, that God would grant us that faith. We would be a different people. We would be a different church. The church would be completely different. Oh, that God would grant us that faith. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, repentance is something which is impossible for us to do unless you grant it. Be merciful to us, to our fallen nation, awash in the blood of 70 million or more abortions, and in open denial and rebellion against the image of God, male and female, as you purposed. We pray for repentance in all of North America, and we pray that you would raise up men who will courageously proclaim the free gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, bring reformation and revival to our land. Do so in this generation so that we do not die in the name of our infamy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand and sing.